0: My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, as ministers hold out the prospect of a fourth COVID lockdown, we return to one of the unresolved issues of the first one back in March 2020 and the question of why so many patients were discharged from hospital and released back into care homes without being tested for the virus.
1: If you were lucky enough to be vulnerable but living at home, you were keeping yourself safe. If you were unlucky and you were vulnerable and you were living in a care home, you were left a sitting duck. And that's why so many people have described this policy as just unbelievably reckless. And it has contributed to the deaths of tens of thousands of vulnerable people.
0: Kathy Gardner, whose father died in care during the first Covid wave. She now wants to hold the government to account in a court of law. We'll be hearing her story shortly. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast only exists thanks to subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper which costs just £36 a year. A subscription also helps fund our news-breaking website, Byline TV. And this pod, so do subscribe if you can. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. This job is about treating people with dignity. I'm Tony, by the way. I've from the hospital. We're going to be taking on a few more residents.
2: Was it safely?
0: Where's your mask?
2: I didn't know we needed to wear them. <laughs> Did you
0: know it would be like this? This is us being useful. I
1: need urgent medical assistance. It's an
0: extremely high Nobody's picking off. Uh-huh. Tony, I need
2: your help. No one's coming.
0: That's the trailer for help, an intensely moving TV film available on all four, written by Jack Thorne, starring Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham it highlights one of the scandals of the first wave of the COVID crisis in early 2020. During this period, the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has claimed that the government placed a protective ring around elderly and other vulnerable people in residential settings. Here he is in the Commons in May 2020. Now, for anyone who
2: has a loved one living in a care home, and all those residents and staff, I understand what a worrying time this has been. And I'm glad we've been able to protect the majority of homes and we'll keep working to strengthen the protective ring that we've cast around all our care
0: homes. But what did that protective ring amount to? The facts are that on March 19th, 2020, official NHS guidance was issued with the aim of freeing up room in hospitals for the expected COVID surge. This meant removing large numbers of patients who were already there. The guidance said that unless required to be in hospital, patients must not remain in an NHS bed. As a result, 25,000 people were discharged back into care homes, many of them untested for the virus, allowing them to spread COVID-19 amongst the weak and the elderly. New rules making COVID tests compulsory for patients before going back into care weren't introduced until the following month. In May 2021, The Prime Minister's former special adviser, Dominic Cummings, delivered this blunt assessment. Now, all the government rhetoric was, we put a shield around care homes and blah, blah, blah. It was complete nonsense. Quite the opposite of putting a shield around them, we sent people with Covid back to the care homes. So what was the reality? Dr Cathy Gardner had to break lockdown rules to see her father, Michael, the day before he died in a care home in April 2020. She's now launched a crowdfunding campaign to pursue a judicial review against the government, NHS England and Public Health England, believing that they failed in their legal duty to protect life. She's been telling me her story.
1: My father was living in a care home near Oxford when he died on the 3rd of April 2020. He'd been in the care home for about six months. He had dementia. The care home was fantastic. I was really pleased to have him there to know that they were looking after him and that he was comfortable and cared for 24 hours a day. It never occurred to me back at the start of 2020 that he was at risk for Covid. I just didn't realise how unprotected he was.
0: And how unprotected was he?
1: Well as far as I've been able to tell and as far as I knew at the time he was completely unprotected. Not only were residents unprotected in any kind of positive way, I then learnt about the hospital discharge policy. So whilst we as visitors were locked out um, and forced to look through windows, if we were lucky, uh, through the front door, they were wheeling people in.
0: So patients who were ill, who were care home residents, were discharged from hospital. They may have had COVID, they were allowed back into the care home.
1: Yes, as some people will already realised at the start of the pandemic, there was frankly a mad panic to clear beds in NHS hospitals. Then the decision was made to discharge people as rapidly as possible out into the community, and that included care homes. There was no consideration given, as far as I've been able to see, as to whether those people had COVID or not or any steps in place to isolate or to protect the residents that those people were going to live with.
0: And this was a policy designed to ensure that the NHS wasn't overwhelmed with an influx of COVID patients, but that meant that care home residents who may well have had COVID, perhaps who were asymptomatic, i.e. they weren't showing the symptoms of COVID, were being discharged back into care homes like the one where your father was resident.
1: Yes, that's right. So there's a lot of aspects to what you've just said. In fact, I've heard government ministers and others say that the well, you know, the NHS wasn't overwhelmed during the pandemic last year. Well, (laughs) most of us know, of course, that it was overwhelmed. People might not have been queuing on the pavements and lying on stretches in the road as they were in other countries. But that's only because they were left to die at home without treatment. And they were left to die in care homes without proper medical support in many cases. So that's another lie. The other aspect of this is that the government fundamentally has a legal duty to protect life. It's supposed to take steps to ensure that its citizens don't die when that can be prevented, so long as those decisions make sense. Now, governments sometimes have to, in an emergency, take a step that they know will kill some people, putting it bluntly, but it's for the greater good and that's a reasonable thing. There are examples you can think of where most people would understand why that would be. But the important part of the law is that the government must carefully consider the decisions that it takes, and there should be a record of how those decisions were taken. And that's the nub of this judicial review, is that we don't believe that the residents in care homes were properly considered according to the law. Their right to life seems to have been completely disregarded. The panic to clear people out of hospital, whether they were positive or not with COVID, overrode the safety of the people that they were going to live with.
0: Just tell me a little bit more about your dad.
1: He was a a kind and quite a gentle man. He was a really sort of particular, organised sort of man. And one of the tragedies of what happened to him What's his own death certificate says probable COVID. My father was a superintendent registrar. He'd registered thousands of births, marriages and deaths in his career. And it would really have upset him that his own death certificate was going to be so vague. He wasn't tested when he was ill. GP that had seen him said, oh, he can't go to hospital and he can't be tested. Luckily, the GP that issued the death certificate wrote probable COVID not everybody who died in those first few weeks even had that, which is why the death numbers in sort of March, April, May 2020 are really inaccurate because without testing at that point, we can't even be sure how many people died of COVID.
0: And what kind of dad was he?
1: I was his only daughter, and of course, apple of his eye, I suppose you might say. He was always supportive of what I did, going to university. I hope he'd be proud that I'm fighting now, not just for him, but for the tens of thousands of people that died.
0: Tell me about the last time you saw him.
1: The last time I saw him was about 24 hours before he died because the care home had been calling me to say that he was declining and that they were really worried that he wouldn't live to the weekend. It's important to remember, of course, this was near the start of the first lockdown. We weren't supposed to travel. I live in Devon. He was near Oxford. But it was so important to me that I went to try and see him. I couldn't imagine not doing that. I felt so guilty about driving up there. And that now seems just ridiculous, given what Dominic Cummings did. But I was able to go that night. Luckily, he had a ground floor room. And, you know, I have to say, you regard yourself as lucky just for these small mercies that you have at that time. But I could go around the back of the building and see him through a window, which gave me comfort that he wasn't on his own. He looked comfortable in his bed, in his room. That was the best sort of situation I could imagine for him. And I know that there are many other people who couldn't get to see their loved ones at all. Some of them died alone. My father, in that sense, was lucky. The whole process for people who've lost loved ones during the pandemic has been so traumatic because everything was so abnormal. But I'm really pleased that I did see him because it did give me that comfort. And I feel so sorry for those who couldn't even do that.
0: But you weren't able to go into his room and hold his hand?
1: Absolutely not, no. It's those things which just get brushed away now, you know, although it's still going on, that like we weren't allowed to go inside. If he had been in an upstairs room, I wouldn't have been able to see him at all. It's been really, really traumatic for everybody, and particularly when so many people were denied access to their loved ones in hospital, just didn't see them at all.
0: After he died, Cathy, it- at what point did you decide that the government needed to be challenged on your father's death and similar deaths in care homes?
1: It's hard to remember exactly when I became aware of the hospital discharge policy, but I think I saw it mentioned somewhere in the media and then a journalist mentioned the Human Rights Act issued to me. And when I read the hospital discharge policy, I was really shocked because there's absolutely nothing there or in any other policy that I could see about protecting residents in care homes. The hospital discharge policy focused on whether it was safe to discharge the patient, but not on what was going to happen to them when they went out from hospital. It's obvious to so many people, you don't have to be a medic to know, that residents of care homes are the most vulnerable people to a condition like this. They're always known to be vulnerable to flu, but any kind of respiratory infection. That was already obvious from what was happening in other countries too. And yet there was nothing that I could see that showed how those residents had been protected. And I was struck particularly by the timing, because you have to also remember what happened at the beginning of the pandemic. It was the 15th of March when we were told, as the general public, the over 70s, the vulnerable, should stay at home, isolate themselves. We went into full lockdown on the 23rd of March. Now, my father and all the other residents of care homes were left sitting there with no protection at that point. They couldn't isolate themselves. They were relying on other people to do that for them. But on the 19th of March, the discharge guidance was issued. And at that point, people were delivered to care homes, whether or not the staff wanted to accept them, sometimes in the middle of the night, Care homes were put under pressure to take people in, sometimes knowing that that person had tested positive for Covid and some of those people subsequently died of Covid in the care home. So if you were lucky enough to be vulnerable, but living at home, you were keeping yourself safe. If you were unlucky and you were vulnerable and you were living in a care home, you were left a sitting duck. And that's why so many people have described this policy as just unbelievably reckless. And it has contributed to the deaths of tens of thousands of vulnerable people. And that had to be addressed.
0: So the decision to discharge patients, some of whom had COVID, some of whom may have had COVID, but who were asymptomatic and who were residents of care homes, the decision to discharge them back into care homes was made two weeks before your father died.
1: Yes, it was. Obviously, for my father, I can't tie those two events together. It's just impossible, retrospectively, to go back and say he was never tested. But the bigger picture about this isn't just hospital discharge. It's the complete lack of apparent consideration of the protection of people in care homes. For example, making sure that they had PPE, making sure that staff were focused on one care home and not going from care home to care home. Making sure that visitors were being limited. Also, isolating people that needed to go in, whether those people were isolated somewhere in a separate building or quarantined somewhere else. Those were the kinds of steps that you would have expected to see. None of those things were done. So, the failure to protect people in care homes is complete, total failure. What the government should have considered is how do we protect the vulnerable people in care homes? And that's the question that we're asking is what. Did you discuss? Why did you decide to basically do nothing? Remember the famous Hancock statement about we tried to put a protective ring around care homes right from the start? I'm sorry, but that must be a lie because not only was it not evident at the time, there's been no evidence produced to show that that was done. And that's really fundamentally what we're asking for.
0: Your judicial review is ongoing, but you've also taken legal action to try and unpick the thinking behind the government's decision-making. How has that gone?
1: When you're looking at a government's decision, a lot of that information is obviously not in the public domain. We've got some information. We can see SAGE minutes and things like that, Public Health England advice. Some of that is publicly available. But a lot of the background discussions that took place when they were making these decisions We can't see that. We need the government to provide it. They have a duty of candour. They're supposed to make this process easy. They've done the opposite all the way along. They've just tried to dismiss me on technicalities rather than being transparent. And so we went back to the High Court to try and get a judge to rule that the evidence we were asking for should be delivered. Unfortunately, she didn't agree with us. We've now gone to the Court of Appeal to see if they will overturn some of that judgment so that we can get some more information.
0: But the duty of candour to which you refer, this is a legal duty upon public bodies, yet you have been told that certain messages and information, advice received by ministers might be on WhatsApp, for example, and the judge has said that you have no right to see that, despite this duty of candour.
1: I know it's an old fashioned cover up. If they did the right thing by my father and the tens of thousands of other residents of care homes and staff, of course staff also died in care homes. If they did the right thing, then right at the beginning they would have responded to my case by saying here's the evidence, here's how we discussed it, we did the right thing and we would have backed off. But they haven't done that. They've just refused to hand over the critical information that we want and To me, that says everything. I don't know where we will end up, but I can't believe that they did the right thing.
0: What do you think the government was doing when it discharged all those patients back into care homes, some 25,000 of them between mid-March and mid-April?
1: Panicking. I've said right from the start of this process that my belief was that they were panicking. They wanted to protect the NHS. The slogan was protect the NHS. And I think what that meant was, for goodness sake, don't make it obvious that we haven't got enough ICU beds. Because we know as well how many beds have been closed in NHS hospitals, we have way fewer intensive care beds than most other countries in Europe. And one of the things that they were going to be worried about at the beginning is that that was going to become very obvious very quickly. And people would start to scream at how little capacity there was, so by clearing out beds, they were at least able to pretend that there was enough space, like saying the NHS wasn't overwhelmed. There are families out there who will tell you that their loved ones were denied admission to hospital. That hid the number of people who needed a bed by not actually having them at the hospital door.
0: Do you believe that ministers knew that vulnerable people like your dad in care homes were at risk?
1: <sighs> that's that's a really tough question. I'd like to say I don't think they knew, but how stupid are they? You don't have to be a scientist or a medic to understand that these people were vulnerable. We'd seen it from other countries already that certainly the the first people to be dying were usually the elderly. Because they're at most risk of pneumonia, it's a really common cause of death. So for them not to understand that those people were at risk, it was a key recommendation from the Cygnus exercise, protect vulnerable, protect the care homes,
0: Which was the planning exercise, the test scenario.
1: Yes, the most recent one, but certainly not the only one. There have been many, including one, I think, even focusing on a coronavirus, which came out just recently. But they seem to have disregarded all of that. And that is the nub of what we're asking. What did you consider when you were deciding what to do? Why didn't you protect the most vulnerable? And if you didn't, then you broke several laws. They should follow the law like the rest of us. These laws are there for a reason, to protect the population. If the government can decide to do things that cause the deaths of tens of thousands of people, they could do that again. It's not the only example of things being done badly that results in death. And we shouldn't have to drag them kicking and screaming to court to get an admission of wrongdoing. And I'm so grateful for the people that have supported me doing this with the crowdfunding. I couldn't have done it without that. It's hugely expensive. and also emotionally difficult. And I needed that support. And I want to say thank you to anybody listening that has supported.
0: But just so we're clear, you don't think that your dad died simply because it was an unfortunate, unforeseeable side effect of this previously unknown pandemic. You believe that he died because of reckless actions by ministers?
1: Yes, fundamentally. They should have put steps in place to protect the most vulnerable. And they didn't.
0: Cathy Gardner. And if you want to support her campaign, put Cathy Gardner, crowd justice, into your search engine. Parliament's cross-party public accounts committee investigated this issue, and their report, published in July, said care homes were thrown to the wolves during the first wave of the pandemic. Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown is Deputy Chair of the Committee, as well as being Conservative MP for the Cotswolds. How does he see it?
2: Well, I think one ought to start by setting the whole thing in context. So in mid-March, SAGE, the Government SAGE Committee, estimated that up to 4% of the population might be hospitalised. That's 2.4 million people might be hospitalised. This is what they were predicting at the time. Of which 30%, which is 750,000 people, might require critical care. So what happened was that in mid-March, from the 17th of March to the 15th of April, the NHS discharged 25,000 patients into elderly care homes without testing them. And you can imagine the effect that that had on the patients themselves and on the workforce that had to look after them. This was a terrible thing to do, really, because The staff hadn't had adequate training, there wasn't adequate PPE, and the patients weren't tested. So people receiving these patients had no idea whether they'd got COVID or not. The NHS will say, well, they only discharge patients that were clinically fit to do so, but they had no idea, unless they tested them, whether they were about to develop symptoms. And that was what happened. And as a GP said to me at the time... If you discharge people from hospitals, put them into settings containing some of the most elderly and vulnerable people in the country, it's not surprising that they will get COVID, and it's not surprising that a quite significant number of those 25,000 people subsequently, sadly, for their families, and tragically for their families, died.
0: Your committee concluded that the care home sector had been, and I quote, thrown to the wolves by the government. And is it fair to say that the residents of care homes were thrown to the wolves by the government in the same way?
2: Well, the government were under huge pressure. The NHS was under huge pressure. Between the 17th of March and the 12th of April, uh, the NHS beds available for this COVID, remembering that the figure that I've just given you, the vast figures that SAGE had predicted, their available beds went from 12,600 to 53,700. Now, I think what the government should have done instead of discharging these people into care home settings is they should have used the Nightingale hospitals to discharge them into the Nightingale hospitals to at least hold them for a week or so to see whether they developed symptoms. If they didn't develop symptoms, then they could have been transferred into care homes. I think what the report that we, the PAC, did from this inquiry was very much to demonstrate that the government were treating social care as very much the poor relation to the NHS and that is something that we were very very clear on has got to change.
0: Compulsory testing for patients going back into care homes was eventually introduced in April 2020. Why did it take so long for compulsory testing to be introduced?
2: Well, this is a really good question, because the government issued guidelines for the NHS on the 17th of March. They didn't issue guidelines to how the social care sector should operate, including infection control and so on, until almost a month later, the 15th of April. So it was clear that their minds were totally concentrated on the NHS and not concentrated on the social care sector. Now, bearing in mind this department calls itself the Department for Health and Social Care, the clue is in the name, they should have equally been looking after the social care sector. As I said at the hearing, I think this was negligent
0: on behalf of the department. That's a strong term to use, negligent.
2: Well, I think when you're discharging that number of people, without testing them, into a setting where you've got some of the most vulnerable people, with care home carers, with not adequate PPE, and one of our subsequent hearings heard very vigorously that the PPE virtually ran out. They were literally scrabbling around between one and another care home, in some cases, to actually have enough PPE to continue to be able to operate. Without adequate training, without PPE and without testing, I think the word negligence is justified. Certainly a proportion of deaths could have been avoided, sadly, most tragically for the farmers involved, if the proper procedures had been followed. Indeed, the same procedures that were being followed in the NHS, for goodness sake.
0: In May 2020, the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, said a protective ring had been placed around care homes. Where's the evidence for that?
2: Well, I would say it was a pretty hollow ring. As you say, they didn't start testing till the 15th of April. That was rolled out very slowly. The actual amount of PPE available to care homes didn't really get properly sorted out until the autumn. And there was quite a significant number of vacancies. So the staff were well overstretched anyway. There was at least 10% vacancies around that April time. And they hadn't been given adequate training. And the other factor which we ought to bring out in all of this is that local authorities were given £3.2 billion, plus an extra £650 million for infection control. A vast bulk of it didn't seem to really filter through to care homes. So on every front, whether it's the actual procedures that were followed or the money that was needed, it didn't filter through to care homes until quite a long time later.
0: Certainly in this first phase of the pandemic, then we're talking about many thousands of patients who were discharged from NHS hospitals back into care homes without testing for coronavirus staff, then looking after them without sufficient PPE and without, in some cases, adequate training as well. It just seems like the the worst case scenario possible for people in those care homes who may often be elderly or in other ways medically vulnerable. It seems like the worst scenario that these people could have been facing.
2: Well, it was not in some cases inadequate training, bearing in mind that this was an emerging pandemic. It was like nothing we'd ever seen before. So exactly how you dealt with it, what PPE was needed was evolving all the time but what is clear that it was evolving first in the nhs and very much second in the care homes so i think those in charge were not paying adequate attention to the social care settings
0: and that is why
2: this disastrous number of people got sick and sadly died
0: there's a suggestion here then that the government whose mantra was that they didn't want the nhs to be overwhelmed was doing everything it could to ensure that patients didn't die from the pandemic on trolleys in corridors, that they weren't dying in ambulances outside hospitals, but that in effect, all they'd done was offset those deaths, which otherwise might've taken place in hospitals and put them onto care homes instead who were left to deal with them. So it satisfied the goal of the NHS not being overwhelmed, but it created a far bigger problem in places that were less well-equipped to deal with them. So that is
2: exactly what happened in practice. But the tragic thing was that there was a solution. They could have discharged them into the Nightingale hospitals, most of which were never used, but purchased and set up with a huge amount of resources at a time when people needed that resource elsewhere and they were hardly ever used. So these people should have been discharged into Nightingale hospitals to see whether they developed symptoms and then discharged them after a week when they isolated to see whether they developed the disease. Then they could have been discharged into social care settings, but that didn't happen, sadly.
0: The tragic conclusion then that one can draw from this is that people died unnecessarily because of the government's failure to adequately deal with this situation, even with the resources that they had available at that time.
2: Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But when you think of those figures, which I repeat, SAGE in mid-March thought that 2.4 million people were going to be hospitalised, which 750,000 people might require critical care. You can imagine at the top of government, the top of the NHS, there was a fair degree of panic going on. Quite rightly, they didn't want people dying on trolleys. That's fully understandable. I understand that. that would have created a terrible image and would have created panic amongst the population if people felt that they couldn't get into hospital if they were ill. Tragically, there was a solution to this. I mean, there is going to be a lessons learned. The trouble is it's going to take years, I suspect, you know, the prime minister's report. We've got to learn these lessons and make sure it never happens again. The primary thing to make sure is that parity of treatment between the NHS And the social care sector, they are both given equal treatment so that people can know for certain that whether they go into hospital or they go into an elderly person's home, they are going to receive the very best treatment, not second class treatment when they go into a social
0: care home. Kathy Gardner, who lost her father in a care home, feel that their loved ones might still be alive today had the government taken Different action had decided not to discharge people without testing from hospitals into care homes. She's got a point, hasn't she?
2: I'm afraid she has. From everything that we've said, from the evidence that we discovered on the PAC. It's absolutely self-evident that if you discharge a very large number of people from hospital without testing them, so you don't know whether they've got the disease, a lot of them may have been asymptomatic, not showing the symptoms at that particular point when they were discharged. Uh, We know that the number of excess deaths between the 27th of March and the 15th of May was 52,000. Quite a substantial number of those will have been in social care settings. In hindsight... It is clear that a number of those people died, and they may not have done, if we had been able to take an alternative course of action.
0: Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown. Now, the NHS Confederation, which represents organisations across the healthcare sector, said, we think it's unfair to say NHS trusts systematically discharge patients who were known or suspected of having COVID-19 into care homes. And a spokesperson for the Department of Health and Social Care for England said alongside the extra £1.3 billion to support the hospital discharge process, we have provided 172 million items of PPE to the social care sector since the start of the pandemic and are testing all residents and staff, including repeat testing for staff and residents in care homes for over 65s or those with dementia. If you want to comment on the story, please do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation at BylineTimesPod on Twitter. We've also got Byline Radio coming soon. Just wanted to whet your appetite. There will be more details in the next few weeks. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.